It's time, D-Heads. Disney Blue presents Disney On Demand. Every week, Disney Blue lets you relive the magic, the movies, and the memories with celebrity guests, the best of classic Disney, and breaking news on Disney's latest. So put on your ears and give it a little bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Disney Blue's Disney On Demand is on the air! Now, here's your host, Jonathan Johnson. All right, all of you D-heads, school is back in session and you tuned in for another magical installment of Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. And as I mentioned, yes, school is back. Fall is here and everybody is ready for school to happen, whether it's your children or parents looking for that break. I myself just sent two of my four kids off to school this last week. And this week, for show number 46, for the week of September 5th, 2013, we have all kinds of fun here this week, D-Heads, because we have a special treat. We are doing something slightly different here this week for the show, as we are gonna welcome director, producer, animator, a man behind over 15 Disney World attractions, on top of that, back to Neverland, including great films like the Brave Little Toaster and the Disneyland 50th Anniversary Special with Steve Martin and many other goodies, we're going to welcome none other than Jerry Rees here to the show this week. And Jerry is going to be stopping in all show long. That's right, D-Heads. We're doing the show slightly different here this week. Instead of bringing you our normal format and template that you've come to know and love, Jerry is going to be hanging out with us for the entire show. So get ready for that as Jerry Rees is going to be stopping in and he's going to talk about a variety of different things, including creating such great attractions like Alien Encounter and the behind-the-scenes animation tour with Back to Neverland and many other things that he has done, including the animated classic The Brave Little Toaster. In addition, we also have the D-Team back. That's right, we have the entire D-Team as Lexi is going to take that trip down the Hollywood Walk of Fame and give you a little bit more about our special guest here this week, Jerry Rees. We have Jamie back with the Artist Corner as he's going to continue to go deeper into the lives of Walt Disney's nine old men. We have Aaron back with I Want to Know as he's going to dip his hand into the virtual mailbag and answer all those questions for all of you D-heads. And we have Jason back with the vault as Jason is going to go deeper into one of those DVDs and Blu-rays that you just want to add to your collection. And it doesn't end there. We have a brand new D-team member who is kicking off here this week in Paige. That's right, our D-team member Paige is going to be debuting the Magical Music Review as she's going to bring a little bit of music and magic that is definitely connected to our special guest here, Jerry Rees here this week. So we have all kinds of fun, many things lined up, school's in session. I'm excited to have somebody stopping in for the entire show here this week, all of you D-heads. So I'm going to prep up, get a drink, get ready, and let's officially kick off show number 46 for the week of September 5th, 2013. And I'll be right back, all of you D-heads. Now is the time, now is the best time, now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize, live every minute Open your eyes and watch how you win it Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam Tomorrow is still but a dream Right here and now, you've got it made The world's forward marching and you're in the parade Now is the time, now is the best time Be it a time of joy or strife there's so much to cheer for, be glad you're here for, it's the best time of your life. 
Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize. Live every minute. Open your eyes and watch how you win it. Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam. Tomorrow is still but a dream. Right here and now, you've got it made. The world's forward marching, and you're in the parade. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Be it a time of joy or strife. There's so much to cheer for. Be glad you're here, for it's the best time of your life. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize. Live every minute. Open your eyes and watch how you win it. Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam. Tomorrow is still but a dream. Right here and now, you've got it made. The world's forward marching and you're in the parade. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Be it a time of joy or strife. There's so much to cheer for. Be glad you're here for it's the best time of your life. Cooper and their dealings with dressed envelope to Davis and Kirk. Right down that. Scott, the Magic Kingdom has a whole new land for you to visit. It's the all-new Tomorrowland. Hold on to your seat as Scott gets set for a chilling visit with an extraterrestrial. Fear not, people of the future. We are simply visitors from your past. We are friendly. Hi. And we come looking for scary attractions. We do. Hi, folks. How are you? Good. Uh, listen, have you ever encountered an alien before? Several times. So what happened? That was an interesting conversation. Do I in any way remind you of an alien? Uh, well... Uh, what would you say to it? I'd invite him to dinner. Now, what, what if you turned out to be the dinner? Ooh! <laughs> she wouldn't like that at all. Oh, Hi, where are you from? London, England. All right, so you are an alien. <laughs> yes, Have you guys ever been abducted by an alien? I have. You have? Yeah. And how was it? It was crazy. The terrifying new alien encounter where they're going to be transporting a live alien creature right into the same room with us. Try to contain your enthusiasm. Are you guys scared? No. There's no reason. It's the future. It's science. Let's go. Come on. We've all had our shots. I'll guard the exit. I'm right behind you. I know you're all uh, a little nervous, but I'm... Uh, Sure, there's nothing to worry about. No, it's all right. So, just this part of the chair. Hopefully. It's Disney Blues. Disney on demand. You hear that? It's the winds of change. Here's your host, Jonathan Johnson. All right, all VD heads, so I hope you enjoy the kickoff for show number 46 for the week of September 5th, 2013. And as I mentioned, we have a variety of different things going on here this week that is slightly different. All kinds of fun as we are going to have producer, director, animator, and more of over 15 
Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Euro Disney Attractions, an animator, a director, a producer who's behind such films like The Brave Little Toaster, as well as Disneyland's 50th anniversary film with Steve Martin, and many other things, Jerry Reese stopping in here very shortly, and he's going to hang with us for the entire show. So with that said, we have a very special show lined up here this week, so I'm not going to do news, yes I know, cut me some slack, two weeks in a row of no news, I know, I know, you really love the news, and next week... Fear not, news will be back in action, D-Heads. But we have just some great things on the horizon and some great shows here that we're making the magic. We have the D-Team stopping in all show long. We have Jerry Rees here. I mean, we have lots of fun. So I'm pretty stoked about this week's show. So, you know, I just, like I said, cut me some slack. Next week, news will be back. I promise you, news will be back. And we even have some great news from a D-Team listener named Wayne with some insights about the Disney digital copies and some other things that we're going to be sharing here next week as well. So there's going to be a a lot of fun things in store here. Now, Jerry is waiting in the wings. He is right here waiting in the wings, ready to hang out with all of you D-heads here this week. We have the D-team on the horizon, so I'm just second way for one second here. So before I let you go, I'm going to have a little bit of fun here. We're going to give you a little bit of a cue, and uh, next time you hear me in just a couple of minutes, we're going to have Jerry Rees stopping in here at the show to hang out all show long. Get ready, D-Heads, because this is definitely different, definitely fun, and it's going to be great. So before I do that, I do want to give you all the different ways you can stay connected here at Diz Radio, and you can always visit our official website at DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. There you can find our full list of past shows, archives, and more, including connecting up with the D-Team, our 24-7 live chat room, current news, and more, and that's at DizRadio.com, D-I-Z Radio. Com. Now, you can also connect up with us on all the social media outlets at Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disney On Demand, on Facebook.com at Disney Blue. You can also find us on Twitter, AOL Instant Messenger, Instagram, and more. Just search Disney Blue, and that's B-L-U. So definitely stay connected, all VD heads. So with all that said, I'm keeping this short. I'm going to give a little bit of a segue, literally, like two, three minutes. And we're going to kick it off with Jerry Rees hanging out all show long here this week. And we have the D-team with Paige, Jamie, Jason, Aaron, and Lexi all stopping in. So it definitely is going to be a different show for show number 46. But uh, I hope you enjoy it, D-heads. Let's keep the ball rolling. Canada. Big. Wide. And very, very cold. What? Here in the Great White North. It snows 24 hours a day. No, 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 no. Every day of the year. Excuse me? Its frozen landscape is dotted with igloos. Uh, hello? Uh, Homes no, for the vast majority of Canadians. Would, would someone please Penguins just stop Penguins and the... polar bears prowl the permafrost, poaching and plunder. Sorry to interrupt, but everything he said is wrong. You're completely wrong. I am? I mean, have you ever been to Canada? Mm, technically, no. Uh-huh. You know, you know, I think that these good people deserve to hear from someone who knows the true Canada. Someone who loves Canada, who grew up there. Is Celine Dion here? No, Celine Dion is not here. I'm referring to myself, Martin Short. Hello. Raised in Hamilton, Ontario. Fine. I'll just go to the France Pavilion film, where they appreciate an invisible narrator. Disney Blues, Disney On Demand.
It's time for this week's Disney On Demand special guest. All right, all of you Disney fans, you tuned in for another magical installment of Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. And as we continue bringing you all the magic, the memories, and all the fun from your lifetime of Disney, whether it's growing up, going to the theme parks, and all those fun memories that you have with your family, we have somebody very special here with you this week as somebody that is no stranger to any of you Disney fans, whether you're a fan of the Brave Little Toaster, maybe somebody like myself who's a fan of Tron. Also, how about all those Disney theme park attractions that you know and love from Alien Encounter, Indiana Jones, you know, Cranium Command. I mean, you name it, he has been part of it. We have none other than Jerry Rees here with us. Welcome to Disney On Demand. Ah, thanks, Jonathan. What a great intro. (laughs) Well, it is our pleasure having you on. I mean, somebody, you know, who is so involved with Walt Disney Imagineering and creating so many different things, I I guess that, uh, you know, as I put it, from many people's lifetime of Disney, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you pick the memory and you probably have touched upon somebody there. I guess uh, starting off with that and getting into, you know, what you do for a living, I guess, where did it all begin? 
Oh my gosh! Well, during your intro, you were talking about people who grew up as fans of uh, of Disney stuff when they were kids, and um, then deepened the experience over the years. And uh, you know, that's really where it started for me was just enjoying the storytelling, the art, the experience of of Disney, of all things Disney. And um, so, gosh, I mean, we can touch on more of this later on. But um, my first direct interaction with Disney was a, a letter that uh, that Imagineering sent back to me when I, I think I was like 12 years old and I had written a letter to them asking about what material they used for audio animatronic skin and uh, I, you know I wanted to try to make my own audio animatronic character and so I got this handwritten letter back from from WED from uh, you know the Imagineers and it was ju- it just was so, so impactful on me to have them take the time to personally answer it was not a form letter at all they, they answered this kid with a question about uh, about what went on in the theme parks, and I was I was so impressed and encouraged to continue continue uh, my whole sort of journey. And then um, when I was a junior in high school, I actually was handed a, a phone number on a scrap of paper. Uh, somebody had seen my artwork. I'd been experimenting with fine art, with animation, with music, all different kinds of things, and they thought that my work might grab Disney's interest. So. Um, they jotted down the phone number for Ed Hansen, who was the manager, production manager of the uh, of the feature animation department at Disney. And uh, so I called, and um, they had me come in. My dad drove me down, and uh, and I showed my portfolio, and they really liked it. So from the time I was a junior in high school, then I, I was amazed to have a desk assigned to me at Disney with. Eric Larson, who was one of Walt Disney's nine, famed nine old men, uh, there to tutor me. And so whenever I had a chance to have a break from high school and summer vacation, uh, whatever, I would go in and and sit at that desk and was mentored by Eric. And, and you know, Frank and Ollie were still uh, still animating. It was before they started doing their uh, their amazing books. Uh, so they were still at the desk. Milk Call was still there animating. So I was just in in heaven. I was this kid that was just trying to learn. I was just amazed by what they did, and uh, the fact that they'd been there for the whole history of uh, of Disney. My goodness, from from the early years. So I was trying to soak up as much as possible, and so you know that that was sort of getting in the doors. And then they, um, as I graduated high school, then they asked me if I wanted to be teacher's assistant for the guinea pig year of what was going to be the CalArts character animation program. So I said yes, and so I spent the summer between high school and college prepping a whole bunch of stuff to take out to CalArts for, uh, for my fellow students to, to enjoy from the Disney archive. It was just an amazing summer. Um, part of the time I felt kind of like I was a monk that was doing illuminated text because I would, I would get out material from the archives from the, the morgue, they called it over there with Dave Smith and the, uh, the amazing archives. They just always called it the morgue. And so you'd go order a scene from the morgue and it would come back and it would like some amazing, you know, the original pencil art from a scene from Pinocchio, say. And, you know, it was, uh, it was just between cardboard with rubber bands holding it together. You'd take the rubber bands off, flip the drawings, beautiful art. So I would pick scenes that I thought the animators would particularly, all of us students as we were studying to be animators, would particularly enjoy. And they would do really beautiful copies of everything. Um, and I, I then would sit and copy what they call the exposure sheet. It was the instruction sheet that was sent to the camera department to tell them, you know, how many frames uh, each drawing would be exposed for and how many levels and the dialogue track. 
Uh, there was even back in the days, you know, before computers were doing any of this, they, they had a voice modulation on the side of the exposure sheet and, you know, be in different colors and things. So I was like trying to copy all that stuff exactly. So it would look like that. Um, we didn't, we didn't do like Xeroxes or any of that. I just sat there and with a bunch of colored pencils, tried to copy as precisely as possible what that was. So took all of that out for, um, for that first year of CalArts. And one of my tasks was to, uh, to answer the phone for, for Jack Hanna, who was our main teacher out there during that summer. And so uh, I was taking down names like, okay, how do you spell Lassiter? How do you spell, how many S's? Bird, it's uh, Brad Bird, it's like the, the flying kind of bird. Okay, and then Mus John Musker. So, I, you know, it was really fun uh, in those days. First impressions of meeting each other and then going out and do the, doing that year. And, you know, that just sort of, that first year at CalArts um, was the thing that just officially started it all then. And, uh, you know, I, long and winding road, I was a uh, feature animator. I was the only feature animator from Disney that jumped onto the Tron project. We were between features, and I just loved the idea of exploring. And uh, then, uh, you know, after a few projects, uh, was outside of Disney, and then... Uh, and Gary Kurtz, who had just finished uh, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, was uh, took a project that Brad Bird and I had done under under his wing, and was really trying to help us take animation to the next level. So you know there was just this whole adventure of being uh, inside of Disney in the early years, um, having some filmmakers like Gary Kurtz understand what people like Brad and I were trying to do, uh, take us under their wing. And then, um, you know, just the crazy things happened. Like, uh, then I, I got the opportunity to write and direct the brave little toaster. Uh, and, and, you know, there was, there was very little money, but there was a chance to have real creative freedom. And so that was a, a, a really alluring thing to do. And after sort of all that long and winding road, there was just a, uh, an opportunity to come touch the theme parks for the very first time. And it was totally unexpected. But, you know, uh, a lime producer on a project that eventually became Back to Neverland um, called me and, you know, just wanted my opinion of, of some projects they were doing. And they knew I had had this career as a Disney feature animator, right, um, earlier. And they were doing a show that was supposed to be explaining what made Disney animation special. And they had a, um, a Carol Burnett and Donald Duck version, and they had a Siskel and Ebert version. And it was going to play at Disney MGM Studios when it, when it opened and be the, the film that explained what made Disney animation special. So uh, Mark Kirkland, great guy, um, who's now had many years uh, on The Simpsons, he, he was line producer and he invited me to come take a look because he said, you know, it's just, we're, we're not quite sure and it's been months and it feels a little bit like the wind is going out of the sails and you know, you used to be a Disney feature animator. You care about all that stuff. Why don't you come take a look um, and just be an opinion. So I, I had no expectation of, of doing anything beyond just uh, giving an opinion. Uh, and I went in and, and looked at the stuff and it, you know, it was clever, uh, it was creative, but it was all touting the, the technology behind animation that would happen at any studio. So it was how many drawings per second and just the technology, how you paint a cell and all of that good stuff. And anyway, I just, uh, I, I really got passionate about it and I said, but 
that's not what makes Disney special. Any animation studio can brag on that. What makes Disney animation special is it's all about emotion. It's about how, the, how you and the audience feel about the character at every moment. And every department is the story department. The color, colors that are chosen are chosen for the reason of, you know, how they make you feel about the character. The props, you know, what clothes the character's wearing, what, what kind of chair is in the room. Every single decision is a story and an emotional decision. That's what makes Disney special. And so anyway, uh, uh, you know, I got in this, this whole soapbox <laughs> about, about really telling the, the story because, you know, it's, it's like Brad and John and, and uh, so many of us had gotten the opportunity to, to sit at the, at the feet of the, the Disney veterans and learn from them. And they, man, they, they were so clear about the messaging of, uh, you know, what they did for their careers. And I said, that, man, that is the, that's the message, not, not this technical stuff. So they said, well, how would, you, how would you tell the story? And so I, you know, I brought up the notion of let's get somebody like Robin Williams. In fact, let's get Robin Williams. And let's have him be the kid in a candy store who gets to go into the animation and feel all those feelings. So a step at a time, he would see how the color change would make him feel differently. He would see how, you know, all the props, the layout, the perspective, all the different choices that are being made would make him go through this whole uh, roller coaster ride of experience, right? And I thought, who, who would externalize that? What's going on the inside? Better than Robin Williams, for God's sake. And back at the time, you know, he was... He had just come off Mork and Mindy, and he had just done uh, Good Morning Vietnam for, um, you know, for Disney. So that, you know, he was very much on my radar and on the public's radar in general, but, you know, not a choice that was associated with animation at all. And uh, so, you know, they, the people that were doing, putting the project together uh, were very gutsy, and they called... Disney and they let them know that they were proposing to unplug about 10 months of work on the two previous concepts. Um, and, you know, it was interesting because Frank and Ollie had even been over collaborating with them on that stuff, but they were brave enough to just say, we're going to un unplug all that stuff and do something different. And then there was some kind of like, what over the telephone and uh, wondering what was going on. But they said, no, you know, Jerry came in, you know, he's uh, he went was teacher assistant, the Cal, the program he was a feature animator he was with Tron you know he's really been part of that of the whole Disney experience and and we really love the messaging that's coming in on this now um so they turn to me and go okay you've got you've got two weeks to get it ready for a preliminary show uh to Peter Schneider and and uh and then Peter's going to assess it and if he w wants Jeffrey to see it or not so I said well what do you mean uh, I have two weeks and they went oh you have to do this and they said, you know, you care about it. You, you know, I was putting slogans up on the on the wall like it's it's not how you move the drawings; it's how the drawings move the audience. You know, it's like <laughs> these slogans. They said that's what you're bringing in is what it should be. So you should do this. So I went from just offering an opinion to suddenly writing and directing this project, and it was but it was it was such a joy because, you know, I, I had been at the studio. I had loved dealing with the veterans i was kind of frustrated by what was going on at the time and you know it didn't feel like the you know the the films really were reaching uh the, the kind of quality and adventure that that they had in the golden era and frankly eric larson was really supportive of me and of brad and of various people who who at the time looked outside of disney and just to do independent things to try to experiment because 
Eric said, look, don't, don't just copy what we did. We took things from our real lives and put them into our films. We were observing people, observing life, observing nature, and we were putting that into the film. So by all means, you have to go out and do that. Don't just sit here on top of the, you know, the Disney morgue archive and look through what I did, what Milt did, what you know, Frank did, and copy it. You have to observe life and bring it in. So he sort of you know, tearfully, joyfully wished us well as we left Disney for a while and were out experimenting. And so for me to come back and suddenly be interacting with Disney again, and the reason being I was trying to protect the messaging that those veterans had taught us, you know? It was like, so I felt like, oh, I'm back to protect what Eric and Frank and Milton, all those guys stood for, um, and make sure that when the public sees this film about Disney animation, they really get the heart of what it is. And, they, you know, I don't want to water this stuff down. So um, so anyway, they, they just uh, love the passion and got a great team working uh, uh, around me there. And, and it was so fun to see them dive into it. Uh, they were, uh, you know, a bunch of really great novices. And, and uh, some of them were on the crew that I had used on the Brave Little Toaster. And some of them were like directly out of college, like, you know, Kevin Leona and Kirk Wise and, uh, you know, Daryl Rooney and, and Steve Moore. And there were a bunch of people where it was, it was their first job, Tanya Wilson. Um, you know, it just, it, it was, it was, they were cutting their teeth on, on uh, you know, doing animation for the very first time and doing it in a, a crazy schedule on, on Toaster. Every day, I had to have the animators do as much output as they would have normally done in two weeks at Disney, in Disney Features. And that's pretty daunting. I mean, you think about it, you go, okay, two weeks of plan happens by the end of today, right? So, they, so that group who had really gone through the like, trial by fire on that, uh, a number of them came on to the Back to Neverland show. We wound up calling it Back to Neverland with Robin Williams being turned into a little lost boy, going back to, into Neverland and having to, to face Captain Hook one-on-one -on -one and feel the fear and the adventure and the joy of having Tinkerbell come to help him out and meeting Peter Pan and the mermaids. And so it was the roller coaster ride of him going back to Neverland to discover all this stuff about bad animation. So they, uh, this young team joined me on it and they were just wonderful and they they put everything into it and but it was so f interesting to watch their relationship with disney grow as well and at at the beginning of the process i kind of got this uh stern talking to where i was told that none of these people were qualified to do animation that would be representative of disney animation and uh so i told them well i know that you see me as the new kid on the block but i actually was here when Ron Miller was running the place, Walt's son-in-law, and I had already had a career as a feature animator, and then I left, and I'm coming back. So, you know, I, you're the third regime I've dealt with. So I'm like, I, all due respect, I see you as the new kids on the block as much as you see me as the new kid on the block. But I, I, I will guarantee the quality for you. Uh, so I gave them uh, all assurances. And it was really hilarious and, and fun that before the project was over, uh, the producer and I had to co-write a letter to Disney saying, we are very happy that your opinion went from not qualified to now you want to hire all of them out from under us, but please stop calling them at their desks while they're working on this film because, after all, it's for you. 
when they're done with the film, then you can hire them. So <laughs> please, hands off until they're done. So uh, they went from like, oh, none of them are qualified to we want all of them. And actually, they, they all did uh, go charging into Disney as soon as we were done. Uh, and so that was really, it was really a fun byproduct of, uh, of our efforts was to, to see that happen. Um, and anyway, then, um, you know, Katzenberg uh, supported the, the Robin Williams casting choice. It, there were little trepidations at the beginning where, you know, he and a number of other people were worried that, uh, you know, Robin had a reputation as crotch grabbing adult comic uh, at the time, and they said, you know, that doesn't really translate to Disney animation, and, um, you know, they said people have an expectation of family entertainment and all that good stuff. So I, um, you know, I reminded Jeffrey that back in the day, uh, Walt had hired Cliff Edwards, ukulele Ike was his stage name, to play the role of Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. And he was a, a, an adult nightclub entertainer at the time. So, you know, after the kids were in sleep, uh, sleep or with the babysitter, mom and dad would go out and see uh, Ukulele Ike in the club, you know. So I said, That's, that really is an equivalent kind of choice. And, um, you know, we'll just make sure the material is, uh, is safe. But his kind of, uh, uh, the appeal he has for adults and the playfulness that will obviously translate for children, uh, I think is irresistible. And I, and I would argue that it's, it's sort of a Walt kind of choice that, you know, we look back on Pinocchio and go, oh, it's a, what a quaint thing and what a, what a nice, safe, charming voice. It's like, nah, he, he pulled him out of the nightclub and, and took a little chance there, and it paid off. So, uh, so anyway, Je you know, Jeffrey and, and Michael were definitely in the mood to play a little edgier on a lot of things having to do with Disney. Uh, and they'd already done that in live action. So because it was a short and because it was, they saw this kind of an experiment, they, uh, they let me go ahead and, and uh, work with Robin. So, and, and then it was, that was a joy. And Robin and Walter were great as a team, and they both really admired each other. And then it was just so wonderful to see um, them love being in the project and to see the project do well in the park, see the, the audiences really embrace it as Disney, uh, not just in its messaging, but the, the tone and, and uh, the charm. And, and people really loved Robin in animation, and, and then it led directly to him being cast in uh, Aladdin. So anyway, after, uh, uh, after Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, graciously supported the casting of Robin Williams, he was ready to, uh, to get a little more edgy. And, um, you know, but he asked me to, you know, rein it in and keep it safe. And I assured him I absolutely would. Um, Rob and Walter just had a great time acting with each other. They both really admired each other, which was a, a real plus. And we had a great time on the set. And the animators had a great time. And um, when we were done with the show, it was just so wonderful to see it open in the park and and not just work, but really be embraced by the public, and uh, both for the messaging of what it was saying about Disney animation, but also just to have Robin Williams and his charm and his improvisation folded into animation. And there was just a spontaneity that seemed irresistible. And there was a, a sequence in particular that I think really grabbed people's fancy. Um, it was a metamorphosis scene, where uh, as, as Robin, who started in live action, he's a tourist in the film that's pulled out of the crowd by Walter Cronkite and um, you know Walter's explaining how Disney animation is done and um, so 
he takes Robin as a volunteer and step by step takes him through the process of being turned actually into an animated character himself so he can feel all the things that happen once the emotions start happening in, in Disney animation. And so once Robin is no longer physically himself, he's just a voice and he is now a voice that's coming through a drawing and he's on the animator's desk looking up from the piece of paper. He's like, hey, how, how far can we go with this? And he says, anything. He, you can be anything that he can imagine. You know? So uh, so hey, animator, why don't we have some fun with this? Let's go. So uh, they, he, I just let him riff. I let him improvise. I, I, and somewhere I've got like two hours of improv from Robin just becoming whatever he could imagine. And sadly, I had to cut it down to just you know a few seconds. But uh, it became this metamorphosis sequence where Robin is just playing with what he could be. And actually, it was um, in the film, Bruce Smith is sitting at the desk. He actually was my directing animator on the film. So that's an accurate representation of, of the crew. But, the, but the, most of that metamorphosis scene was actually animated by Franz Fischer. Um, and so all of us just had a blast. And um, he changes from one thing to another. And you know, the, fast thing, the last thing he turns into is, uh, is Mickey. That was sort of the button. He's like, ha, ha. Hi, everybody. I'm a corporate symbol, which actually was the one scripted line. Everything else was improv, but the I'm a corporate symbol was a scripted line, actually, which was pinned, I believe, by uh, Steve Moore, who was one of my great storyboard artists. Um, so, but, but here you had this improv sequence in the middle of, the, of this little film about, about animation. And that led directly to Robin being cast in the feature Aladdin. And so all of us were just so fun to see not only our short film play in the park for many years and be successful, but to see it have a direct impact on the future of Disney entertainment, Disney features. And, you know, I had gone to school with John Musker and he uh, talked to me about what it was like to, to work with Robin and is he a loose cannon? Is he, you know, uh, good to work with whatever. Um, and then he had the fun of working with Robin and, you know, they had used the metamorphosis sequence from, from our film, from back to Neverland to sort of show everybody, here's what it'd be like, sort of convince them of it. Um, and then they got, had the fun, John and, and John Musker and Ron Clements of, of working with Robin and, and doing the film. And, you know, Eric Goldberg and other animators had a lot of fun now doing the metamorphosis thing again, only now in the form of the, of the genie and the story and all that good stuff. And so Musker calls me, um, as they were completing the film and invited me to the premiere. And he said, by the way, look for it. We put a tip of the hat to your short film in the feature because, you know, it just never would have been this movie without that domino falling first. So I said, oh, great, thanks. So I went to the premiere and I just got so caught up in their film, I completely forgot about looking for the, uh, the little hidden tip of the hat until the very end, uh, you know, when the genie gets his freedom. He comes back from one of his uh, time trip journeys, and he's wearing a goofy hat and a tourist out uh, tourist shirt, like a um, uh, Hawaiian shirt, you know. And that outfit is exactly what, in my short film, Robin Williams was wearing in live action when he steps out of the crowd as a tourist in the theme park. Um, so they permanently made this tip of the hat, where uh, you know it's the same costume, referencing our our film. In the feature, and actually, we, we some of us who did the short saw merchandising later, where it was like you, you could buy a version of the genie in the store wearing the goofy hat and the uh, Hawaiian shirt, which actually came from our short. So it was it's kind of odd how the merchandising were. Nobody knew it, 
in fact, the public didn't know it, but it was actually reflecting the thank you to the short when they were buying that uh, piece of merchandising. Uh, so anyway, that was that was an example of some of the fun uh, that I have had in in the theme parks. But that one just it fell into my lap. Uh, it happened to be a subject I was passionate about, um, so I got to really feel a joy of of getting it back on message to to keep the Disney legacy. Uh, uh, you know the messaging on point for the Disney legacy that uh, that those veterans had worked so many years to cultivate, um, and then there was the fun of our little team uh, doing an experiment that led to uh, you know a, a big splash in Disney features, and I think a lot of people looked at that as sort of a uh, you know a cornerstone of, of sort of a change of style and then sort of embracing of of contemporary humor and personalities into into animation in a in a new way and and for me that was kind of a fun second beat because i had just come off of the brave little toaster where i had made that choice by working with uh, a lot of the groundlings improv artists to do voice work um so so i, I was sort of used to that I was, I was really got a kick out of it and i was so glad when disney took a deep breath and went okay we're, we're gonna go there too and uh and then not only allowed it in the in the short, but uh, embraced it in the features, and so you know that that sort of um, was a, a sudden surprise to me that I was now sort of in that wonderful storytelling sandbox of the theme parks, and uh, cut to the chase. I've I've just completed uh, sixteen attractions for Disney, where I either was director or or director and co-writer or director writer. Um, and starting on number 17, which will likely open in year 2016. So, uh, so you know, a lot of really fun, wild, crazy things. And when I was a kid going through Disneyland, um, man, I just, I, I loved that stuff. I had no idea that I, in the future, would be crafting experiences for other people to come enjoy at the parks. And it's just, uh, it's wonderful. So uh, I love it. And that's the kind of thing, like you said, where, you know, you've worked your way up from high school doing Imagineering, whatnot, and Brave Little Toaster, and then touching people with, you know, Back to Neverland, which might I add, you know, I was, you know, probably a senior in high school going to, uh, you know, MGM Studios, and I remember seeing that, and, you know, it, it, it highly directed what I wanted to do, because originally, you know, I wanted to be part of WDI, that was my, my goal in life, right. and, and uh you know, so so I clearly remember uh, seeing that film and seeing the the goofy ears and the Hawaiian shirt and you know all that kind of fun stuff. So you know, it, it truly is a testament as to you know that impact that you had on everybody over all these years. I mean, uh, it's the kind of thing where you know you go to the parks now and when they shut down that whole division at MGM, it was so sad to see it go, but it touched so many different lives. You know, I I I really appreciate that. I, that's that's part of the reason it, it's all worthwhile is when you hear stories like that where it, it made a positive difference for people. Um, I've, I've had uh, several other people mention it as a specific touchstone for them where they um, they made sort of a career decision after experiencing that. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just a wonderful thing to hear. And, uh, you know, it, while we were there... Um, you know, when people took the tour, uh, to you know, when when you looked at the film and you went and looked through the glass, do you, do you remember kind of what year you you went? Because you might have seen me and or my team 
in the in the walk around tour after the film if you if you came there in the right year do you remember um i was there pretty much every year from 89 all the way through to 99 so well you know what you well look back if if you took pictures look back through. oh i took plenty of pictures and video okay then all right jonathan then here's your challenge well, go look through your pictures from from that era cuz as soon as i opened the film um I, I, you know, there, there was a whole, whole bunch of things happened to me. Uh, you know, I had four shows opening on opening day, and then came back to uh, on assignment to work on two projects at the same time. One was to uh, Lucas, uh, George Lucas asked me to come rewrite and direct the like the the um, Indiana Jones stunt spectacular experience that he sort of didn't open it officially on opening day i hadn't been involved with it um but on that opening day um eisner katzenberg and and lucas were together and they gestured me over and and uh and you know lucas just said hey you know i want you to go fix the stunt theater um you know it's it needs storytelling and showmanship and i had i had directed george in one of the uh short films for for the park so i'd spent some time up at, at at the ranch with him and stuff he had a taste of what i did so i was really flattered that he figured that i would be the guy to to go take on that assignment so that, that was you know so i had to even though i was west coast i had to go live out there to work on the stunt theater and at the same time they uh assigned me cranium command and that that was also a crazy situation where it had already been undertaken with a whole different team um West Coast. It was halfway through production. Um, I was told the night of that opening, the opening day at Disney MGM, that they they really wanted to change the direction. It just it it wasn't at the the storytelling and quality standards that they that they wanted, and so they wanted me to go look at what had happened, uh, assess what I would do instead, and uh, do a big conference call. I, I did a conference call with Eisner and Katzenberg and. Schneider and Marty Sklar and Tom Fitzgerald, I think, and a bunch of other people, and pitched like, okay, after seeing it, here's what I would do instead. And they went, great, you know, half the schedule is gone, but we have the same opening day and go. <laughs> so I now was like crafting uh, Cranium Command while working on the stunt theater. And so I had to go down to the park and sort of live live there to work on the stunt theater but have my storyboarding team my story team near at hand so that I could uh, go check on them every once in a while to to guide the the cranium command evolution so when you came out of back to neverland you walked in the hallway the first glass windows you looked through were the story department where storyboards were pinned up right that that group of people in the first days of the of the film playing in the park, that team of people was my crew storyboarding Cranium Command. So anybody that came through was actually watching the birth of another theme park project um, and didn't know it. So if <laughs> there's a probably a very good chance that some of your pictures show uh, Kirk Wise, Gary Trousdale, Daryl Rooney, Rebecca Reese, uh, me uh, in that space working on what was to become Cranium Command. And the public didn't know it. They just went, hey, storyboards, just like 
just in back to Neverland, they said there'd be, a, this was one of the stages, and I come out, here it is, it's happening. Well, that was actually us <laughs> working on Cranium Command. So I would be so curious if your photo archive includes <laughs> any pictures of, of our gang working on it. Um, and we, we used to try to make it a, a point whenever uh, a kid lingered um, in the hallways and would just, you could tell when, when uh, uh, and it happened pretty often, at least once a day, sometimes more than that. But you could tell when a kid was just mesmerized by seeing the artist at work and was probably dreaming about becoming an artist one day, becoming an animator one day or a an Imagineer one day and you know, they would just get dreamy eyes and be looking in through the glass and the poor parents were trying to move them along but they were just kind of like glued to the window um, so one of us would go okay I got it and you'd go to the exit come out meet them in the hallway and, and talk to them and, and invariably it was something like that where, where you know the kid was basically wondering could I do this someday and our message was absolutely I used to be the kid looking through the window um, and I got here, you could do it. So we tried to always give a, you know, an empowering message to, to people, even, even at the park personally, uh, whenever we could. And, you know, that wasn't an official thing. It's like, we, we never like went and cleared that as a process or a official stance or anything. It's just, you know, we were individual artists who all, all of those kind of things that, that people had done for us in the past meant something to us. It was important. And so we just went, well, you know, we should do it. We should pass it on, you know? Oh, definitely. You know, and that's the kind of thing where, you know, it directed me through, you know, four years of college and getting my BFA. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I completely understand exactly what you mean with the, the starry eyed kids. And I encourage you to my own now, uh, you know, uh, going aside and I'm going to have to go through, uh, you know, yes, four kids. I have a lot. And uh, I, I I have to say that they're taking after dad a little too much, <laughs> but uh, oh, you have trouble ahead. But it's good. It's all good. It is always good, you know. Having princes and princesses, it's it's still awesome thing. You know, all VD heads, we're gonna take a break here. Jerry's hanging out with us for the entire show here this week. Yes, uh, director, animator, producer Jerry Rees is stopping in all show long. So get ready for that. So with that said, I'm gonna leave it and leave the reins to a little bit of the D team, and they're gonna stop in as we have more from the D team. They're gonna bring some signature segments, all kinds of fun. And when I come back, yes, we're gonna have this guy right here. Jerry Rees, continuing to hang out with us all show long. Be right back, all you D-heads, and uh, take it away, D-team. It's like 
Walt Disney Home Video presents The Brave Little Toaster, a beautifully animated musical tale of loyalty and courage that's sure to warm your hearts and brighten your spirits. Wow. Five very special household appliances who are suddenly left alone. We've been dumped, abandoned. Take off on an adventure in search of the small boy who loves them. We're not going to give up hope. This captivating movie is a Parents' Choice Award winner. Oh, listen to this. And the Chicago Sun-Times called it an adorable adventure that kids will treasure. You'll love The Brave Little Toaster, a fabulous musical journey that's sure to delight everyone. This week's Artist Corner looks at Disney animator John Lansbury. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disney presents The Wonderful Hey, D-Heads, welcome to another installment of The Artist's Corner. Now, we've reached our conclusion of covering Walt Disney's Nine Old Men, and our last Disney animator to cover is Jonathan Lounsbury. Jonathan Lounsbury was an American animator who worked for the Walt Disney Company. He's best known as one of Disney's Nine Old Men. John was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and raised in Colorado. He attended the Art Institute of Denver, and while attending the Art Center of School of Design in Los Angeles, an instructor sent him to interview with Walt Disney. Now, Lounsbury was hired by Disney on July 2nd, 1935, beginning as an assistant animator on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He went on to work on numerous other short features in the 1940s, while continuing to serve as part of the animating team on nearly all of Disney's most famous feature-length animated films. In the 1970s, he was promoted to director and directed Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2 and co-directed The Rescuers. Now, John's years at Disney started in 1935 through 1976, now best known as one of Disney's animator's nine old men, John Lounsbury's talent was recognized by one of instructors at the Art Center School of Design in Pasadena who pointed him in the direction of the Walt Disney Studios. He joined Disney in 1935 and assisted Norm Ferguson on The Hag in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and then worked under Ferguson's supervision on The Fox and the Cat in Pinocchio. By 1941, Lounsbury was an animation director working on such films as Dumbo, Song of the South, Lady and the Tramp, and Sleeping Beauty, and many, many more. Lounsbury was responsible for animating many, many characters such as Dumbo and Mice and Cinderella. He also animated Chestire the Cat and Alice in Wonderland and Captain Hook and Peter Pan. Lounsbury had the distinction of being a member of Disney's Nine Old Men, and he never left the Disney studio. His career then spanned 41 years until he died during the production of The Rescuers. John was a phenomenal animator who was respected for his draftsmanship, versatility, and ability to animate broad and cartoony characters in a believable way put together with a very solid drawing style. No one else could animate a Ward Kimball character or a Milk Call character equally well. As a draftsman, Lounsbury was ideal for animation, write Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson. His drawings were simple and loose and full of energy. They had volume, that elusive quality of life. Lounsbury was also a terrific cartoon actor who had a great flair for characters' contrast expressions, broad but fluent movement, designs that communicate character, and drawings that show the character is thinking. In many films, he animated his own characters that were outstandingly done as well as several scenes with other animators' characters. 
Ken Peterson praised that John was a heck of a draftsman who could imitate anybody's style. He managed the animation department at Disney for the longest time in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Now in real life, John was a most assuming star. He was quiet, modest, self-sacrificing, helpful, unselfish, and had no trace of either anger or a temper. Now outside of work, Lounsbury lived all but a glamorous life and lived on a farm where he got to do what he loved, be outdoors. He was just a quiet and shy person with a circus inside him, describes honoree John Pomeroy. Lounsbury's quietude and reserve was fascinating because they believed his bold and powerful passionate drawings, adds Glenn Keane. Sadly, John's modest and unselfish manner and sensibilities often sometimes caused him to be underrated and sometimes could become a victim of situations involving some of the most arrogant and sometimes treacherous animators. It was thought by many animators that John always underrated himself, wrote an anonymous friend at the studio shortly after his passing in 1976. Now, it was not known, but Lounsbury didn't enjoy directing and found the pressures and demands of it not his cup of tea. On February 13, 1976, he suddenly passed away from a failed hospital procedure, and he was greatly missed at the Disney Studios. And in this week's Artist Corner, we spotlight on the Artist Showcase and book signing with Marty Scalar. Marty was Walt Disney Company's international ambassador for Walt Disney Imagineering. Scholar was formerly vice president of concepts and planning for the company, and before being promoted to president and eventually taking the position of vice chairman and principal creative executive of the company before his final role. The company honored him with a window dedication ceremony on this date in retirement July 17, 2009. Marty will be making his appearance on September 11th at the Rider Stop in the Disney's Hollywood Studios at the Walt Disney Resort. Meet Disney legend and Arthur Marty Scholar at the upcoming book signing event. Well, that about it wraps it up for this week's Artist Corner. I hope you enjoyed each week's of Disney's Not Old Men and all the coverage and information that we've shared with you over the several weeks. Now, in future episodes, the Artist Corner will continue to look far and beyond Disney's Nine Old Men and start talking about some of the animators of today. And of the animators of today, they can actually still be considered legends themselves. Now, in the next episode of the Artist Corner, we're going to talk about Disney animator Glenn Keane, recently retired Disney animator. We'll talk about his life and career. For Jamie for the Artist Corner, I hope to see you real soon. This is Watercron Guide here at the Disney Animation Studio. Today we'll have a unique look at how their films are created. Well, sir, you're sir there. Yes, sir. Could you give us a little help today? Oh, yes, sir. Well, you're, wait a minute, you're Walter Crumb's guy. That, and that's the way it is. Hold on, Walter, can you just a moment? <laughs> how you doing? Name's Robin. Nice to be, but you can call me Chuck. <laughs> Robin, what's your favorite Disney film? Well, to be honest, Walter, I think Fantasia has a certain Fellini-esque kind of quality, but my real favorite is Peter Pan, boy. I mean, Never Never Land. Oh, little pixie dust and you could fly, you know? Today you can visit Neverland. Oh, Walter, don't pull my leg. In order to demonstrate the animation process, we're going to turn you into an animated character. Does this mean I'm only going to have three fingers? Tinkerbell! So bright. Oh, it's like being in the presence of Barbara Streisand. Is this Neverland? I mean, these books are huge. You meet without my cliff notes. <laughs> this is where animation begins with a good story, adventure, romance, humor, suspense. Boy. If you get a paper cut here, Walter, you could lose a hand. Hi, everybody. This is Pat Carroll. 
I am so glad you're listening to Disney on Demand. And as Ursula would say, life's full of tough choices. Eat <laughs> Don't forget, keep listening to Disney on Demand. It's Disney Blues. Disney on Demand. Ooh, I thought you were dead. With your host, Jonathan Johnson. What? My dad gave it to me. It shows exactly where we are on the planet. Boop, beep, 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 boop, boop. Was this baby? We'll never be alone. You just tell the man you want to go back to your mother. So I'm back once again, all of you D-heads, and I hope you're enjoying this week's show. It is slightly different. Cut me some slack from uh, not having any news here this week, but we have a special treat in Jerry Rees hanging out all show long here this week. And thank you to the D-team for stopping in and adding that little bit of magic here to the show this week. And all of you D-heads, definitely be sure to connect up with the D-team, and you can always do that on our official website at dizradio.com, D-I-Z radio.com. Shoot them an email. They don't bite, and uh, talk with them. So second way, let's get right back into it here with this guy. Um, now, you know, stepping aside from, you know, things like Cranium Command and Back to Neverland, you know, you were part of other Disney projects that, um, you know, I consider definitely classics. And they may be ones that people touch upon with you or not, but, you know, those like Tron and also one of my favorites that I thought was, you know, it, it, it definitely changed Tomorrowland and Alien Encounter. The extraterrestrial Alien Encounter. <laughs> and for me, that is the direction that Tomorrowland needed to go in. And uh, I miss those days of Tomorrowland. And I think Tomorrowland is, I tend to think Tomorrowland now is a, a spacey extended version of Fantasyland now. So, you know, I guess how was it working on something like Alien Encounter where it was trying to cater more towards the adult Disney fan? Oh, it, it was so fun and it was so dense. It, it was like an everything plus the kitchen sink kind of attraction for sure. Oh my gosh. Just, uh, I mean, everything with the, uh, you know, the media that you would encounter when you first went in the space and then the, the show and tell that would happen when you get into the second space where you have the, you know, sir, the, the uh, robotic um, display sort of guy who's put, you know putting on show and tell for the corporation for excess tech and uh, and then you know the big room the big chamber the live broadcast all this stuff oh what an adventure that was and um, at, you know at the beginning uh, it was one of those things too where the, the the creative slipstream just pulled me along and I was so happy that it did at the beginning I I had gone in and was working on the you know the the broadcasts so anything that was media driven that was video film it, um that was what i was handling um and then I, I i had a lot of impressions a lot of feelings about the whole thing soup to nuts all the way it all would all fit together but plan a was um you know there's another team that's working that so thanks for all the film elements see you later we're going to go install it and i kind of was like Looking out the window, sadly, like, oh, no, there it goes. <laughs> and uh, and then I got a call that, you know, Marty Sklar and Eisner and different people had gone to see the inst- how everything was installed. And, you know, Eisner himself just made the call, said, J- call Jerry, you know, you need you need him to direct the, you know, the whole experience. This is not like just modular stuff where, you know, you hand it off to different people. It's just we need the same storyteller telling the whole story. So um, so that was a, a wonderful surprise. Uh, I 
flew down and uh, was hooked up with uh, wonderful producer Rick Rothschild. And we went through to see how the experience was and came out and just went, okay, here's our strategy. You know, this needs to change. We need to add this here. We knew we did this like for about 20 minutes, a half hour. We just made our list, you know, it's like of our impressions. And, and it's funny, we compared six months later when we finished the list. Um, that was pretty much it. It's like the energy of that first, like the, going through it one, one time, you know, I'd already had the experience of building all the media for it, but then the experience of like, I'm just an audience member now. What do I feel? What's missing? What's needed? Um, we, we just came out and just laser focused. And then, and then, like I said, it took about six months to get there, but then it was so fun to mock up all the different aspects. Um, there were some cool things. I like. You remember? You got to experience it, right? Definitely, yeah. Uh, many times. You remember the? Uh, you remember the the jerk behind you that kicks your seat and says, "Hey, eat this guy." You know, um, that actually was a hap- one of those fun experiments where um, there was an actuator uh, that was supposed to be in your seat to to feel like the subtle vibrations of the creature stalking you, like walking closer and closer. It's supposed to be the feet and. Uh, it just didn't work at all. It was nothing like that. So that, so I'm in the hallway and like a back hallway at Imagineering and they're like, okay, here's one of the theater seats. Here's the actuator that does not do at all what we thought it was going to do. And um, here's a keyboard of frequent, just play with frequencies. What do you think? So I sat there and like played different things. And then suddenly there was boom. And it was like, oh my God, that was like somebody kicked my seat. Boom. I tried it again and I'm like on this keyboard. So I had somebody else sit there and I'll like hit the key and like, boom, hey, who kicked the seat? It's like, aha, this is going to work. So I just wrote that story beat in about having the person behind the seat say the line, kick your chair, um, and the alien now comes to eat you. <laughs> so uh, so it, there was just, a, it was like so fun to just play with parts like that. It's like turn something that seemed like an oops into a really fun opportunity. And Another aspect that was tremendous fun too. I, I, I wish there had been cameras rolling, but we uh, when we we had to build the alien creature in binaural sound space when it stalks you and it comes up behind the seat, and every single seat had binaural sound built into it. So you'd you know ideally binaural sound is best experienced with with headphones on, but the next best thing was just to uh, to build it into the the headrests. In, in every single seat. And um, so have you, have you really experienced binaural, like true binaural sound or you know how it's, how it's done? Oh, yes, definitely. I actually have a couple of binaural uh, recorders. So definitely very familiar with it. Great. Well, you know, so, so back in the day we were doing um, a, uh, uh, using a head to record in. I think there, there's some different methods of recording, but back then it was like a... Um, a sculpted head or a cast head and in the ear canals uh two little microphones that were picking up the sound as it was as the sound waves were warped by the ears and the ear canal and coming into the microphone so it would really replicate what what you normally would get um and that helped build the dimensionality of it so we had our head in the recording studio and then joe harrington who's you know sound wizard genius over there um built this creature that we used to stock the head because you know you you can't just mix that stuff later you have to in this room do whatever movement through space that you want people to hear right so 
he did this rigging from the ceiling that had like the wing parts and the body parts and the and on the head there was the speaker where its voice where its growls would come out of the speaker on its head and so we would like fly this thing closer and closer to the head that was recording the sound it must have looked like insane but um in the in the engineer booth i i could through my headphones just listen and oh my god it was uh it was so tangibly real that this creature was stalking you and and then of course we did the the fun thing of having uh the preamble when it eats the worker on the catwalk above you you see that the last thing it does before it bites is the little uh snaky lick with its reptilian tongue and so in every seat we had the the uh lick little lick mechanism where it you it would it would breathe hot it would stalk you you'd hear that sound that we recorded and by north sound as it comes up behind you and it gets closer and closer and then it breathes hot air on your neck and then on every head they would feel the sneaky lick <laughs> people would scream uh bloody murders <laughs> that was that was fun but you know i cast everybody at, uh, on that show uh i cast for their comedic skills you know it was it was it, the whole attitude was it's fun to be scared if you're scared in the right way it's like you you know it's safe but it's thrills and spills it's almost like being on a roller coaster where it's like you know you're not really out of control you're not really going to crash but it feels like it and people love the adrenaline pump and screaming when you know it's safe and um so you know everybody involved uh was that kind of wonderful comedic performer that brought the sort of fun dark edge to it and so that was just that was it was so fun and uh <laughs> jeffrey jones as uh clinch chairman clinch you know uh oh there was <laughs> there was one thing where again and you know this is this probably exists on the end of a daily somewhere but um you know he was in the teleportation tube uh, where he was fixing to be sent to meet us in in uh, the big teleportation tube on on Earth, and as he went in and you know Spinlock throws the lever too quickly and uh, and things go awry and you see smoke flying out. It was very steampunk. Thinking back on it, uh, it was like computer screens, levers, and steam. So <laughs> like very sort of steampunk. But as he throws the lever, you see the. Um, Chairman Clinch is, is enveloped in this big plume of green smoke, right? And um, so when I would call cut, then they would open the door and, and Jeffy would step out and take a breath because, um, you know, the, the vapor, you know, it, it's not toxic, but it, the vapor does tend to uh, take oxygen out of the air. So you don't want to hang out in the tube full of vapor for too long. Um, so and that really was a safety consideration where we would want to make sure open the tube right away. So I you know I call cut and I'm talking to Kevin and I'm talking to Kathy and we're going through notes for the next take and I'm hearing this boom 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 and I, I look up and I see in the teleportation tube green smoke solid green smoke and these hands coming out pounding on the tube and I was like cut it's like cut Jeffrey we're done you can stop acting and it's like the pounding continues like oh my god he's stuck in the tube so uh the crew ran up and pried the door open and he came stumbling out and uh wheezed and and uh thankfully was a trooper and, and good to go but <laughs> like a little moment of panic where uh chairman clinch story-wise was supposed to be in trouble and he really was <laughs> Right, you know, and Jeffrey was fantastic. You know, I loved Alien Encounter, you know, him getting stuck in the tube. 
is iconic, and it just seems that he always had something with aliens anyways, ever since Howard the Duck. <laughs> right, right. You know, he was, uh, the, the night he, that we filmed him doing his main speech in the, you know, in the preamble, when he, when he speaks as the chairman of, of, of uh, XS Tech, that, that was such a, a riveting performance from him. I, I, I love that, where he's, um, you know, helping planets less fortunate and profit is just a byproduct I've learned to live with, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but he, that, um, that day he had gone through so much. We had, uh, it took about four and a half hours to put that alien makeup on every day. Right. Um, so he had gone through that early in the morning and we had him scheduled to, you know, to, to shoot somewhere midday. And it turned out that word came through that Tyra Banks, who was our alien spokesmodel, uh, had another engagement that she had to make. Um, so we were suddenly pushing all of her shots earlier in the schedule. And Jeffrey was uh, relegated to hanging around waiting. And, you know, it's kind of in in the whole world of life on the set isn't always glamorous. Like waiting is is something that, you know, people always talk about. Uh, waiting, waiting, waiting for, and then, and then suddenly you're on, you know, um, and so he went through waiting all day in his makeup until 1 a.m. to to start. So you know he had, he arrived at something like you know 4:35 o'clock in the morning to get his his makeup on, and then had to go all through the day. And he was such a trooper, so professional, never complained. Um, he really seemed to to just understand, like, look, it's just logistics. Sometimes it's happened. He was very accommodating, and then just, I he he must have paced himself perfectly. I don't know if he like took a nap or something, but he just came in absolutely focused and nailed those things take after take, and just was was perfect. So it was it was so fun working with him, and um and just before uh, Tyra left for the day and she was still in her makeup. Uh, the set photographer wanted to get a bunch of shots of her, um, you know, just for the archives. And uh, Don Thorne was my director of photography. And we, we were, so we're resetting up cameras, getting ready for the next shot. And the, you know, the tire shots were just ha- happening sort of on the edge of the set. And at Don Thorne, he, he like bumps me, he goes, Hey, Hey, look, and he, he gets his, the rest of his crew's attention. He goes, look at that. And Tyra was posing in this alien outfit, you know, right? It's like layers of strange clothing and uh, no hair and an extended cranium and stuff. And every pose was perfect. And he just said, look at that. Every single, every single pose is perfection. He said that photographer has the easiest job in the world. And, you know, this was just before she had, hit the whole supermodel scene. Uh, a lot of people didn't know who she was. And, you know, within a couple of years, everybody knew who she was. But he just, you know, we all just marveled. We just, just even though we had a rushed set, we all just took a few moments and watched her being photographed. Uh, and we just sort of startled at her uh, instincts. So, you know, I, later on when I saw her uh, star really rise, I went, you know, it's it's not just... It's not just looks. It's not just poise. It's not just personality. There's this, also this this inner thing where she knows how she looks from the other side. She knows how to move her body. She knows how to give attitude and mood and 
And uh, it was just kind of amazing to watch. And you just went, she, she earned it and handed it to the photographers of the world. It's like they, did, they didn't have to make her look good. She made them look good. And it was just that was a really fun little sidebar thing that happened. Well, you know, and, you know, Alien Encounter was always something that, that I loved. And like you said, you know, it's it's more than just being, you know, an actor, an actress, a model. It's always about who you are. All right, Jerry. So I think it's that time once again where I think we need to take a break and segue to the D team. We have a lot of fun going on here. More from the D team. All kinds of fun. And thank you for hanging out with all of us D heads here this week. Uh, you know, stopping in, telling some stories and having some fun. And I know you're not leaving yet. I know we got a lot more things on the horizon. So thank you once again for uh, hanging here with us. So all of you D-heads, we have the one and only Jerry Reese hanging out here with us. You've been listening to it all show long. Yes, animator, director, producer, man behind the Brave Little Toaster. Attractions like uh, O Canada and uh, Brave Little Toaster and Alien Encounter and many other things. He's hanging out with us here all show long. So you know what? We're going to take a break here, get something to drink, and uh, we're going to release the reins to the D-team once again. We have some fantastic things with the D-team. We have all kinds of new segments here from the D-team hanging out here this week and all kinds of fun. So, all of you D-heads, before I let you go, I do want to mention that DizRadio.com is officially sponsored by Pixie Vacations. And the agents of Pixie Vacations can help you plan your Walt Disney World, Disneyland, vacations by Disney, or more. All those trips make a magical, special, and something great for you. And you can contact the agents at Pixie Vacations at PixieVacations.com. They're knowledgeable agents who have been doing this for quite some time, and they can really help make that special for you. So definitely check them out at PixieVacations.com. So all of you D-heads, we're going to take a break here, get something to drink. And when I come back, yes, we're going to continue with our very special guest all show long, Jerry Rees. Be right back, all of you D-heads. Check left. One, two. Check right. One, two. Okay, listen up, everybody. If you're not hearing left and right, you should switch your headphones around now. This is going to be a whole new television experience. We're going to put you in the middle of the action, live. You're going to see and hear everything the talent sees and hears as though you were right there with him when it happens. You'll even hear the director talking to him from our control room. Sounds dangerous? Well, it could be. We're not sure how it's all going to work out. After all, this is a pilot, which means it's kind of a test show. Anything can happen. And with live television, it usually does. Okay, the director's ready. Talent's ready. Cue the opening. Hello, I'm Sharon Brooks, director of Undercover Live. Today we'll be following police detective Charlie Foster. He'll be wearing the latest in state-of-the-art technology, a miniature high-res spy cam and super-sensitive microphones that will put us right in the middle of the action. Nothing is rehearsed. There is no script. We don't know what will happen, but we do know one thing. You'll be there. Undercover Live. What's wrong with the picture? It's all snowy. Hey, D-Heads. When you aren't enjoying Disney On Demand, head on over to DizRadio.com and listen to our famous Lifetime of Disney Player, where you can while away the hours reliving Disney classics from film, television, and the parks. What are you waiting for? Keep your hands and arms inside at all times and go to DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z radio.com. And have a magical day. Hey, 
Crazy Heads, Paige here with a new magical music review. As you know, our guest on the show this week is Jerry Reese. Mr. Reese credits for Disney start back at the age of 16, being mentored by one of Disney's nine old men. I continued on with The Small One, Tron, and The Brave Little Toaster. What we're going to look at this week is the soundtrack for his second credit, The Fox and the Hound. The Fox and the Hound soundtrack was composed by Richard Johnson, Richard Rich, Jim Stafford, and Buddy Baker. The songs were written by Jeffrey Patch. One of the most recognizable songs from the film is Best of Friends, which is sung by Big Mama or Pearl Bailey. The song describes Todd and Copper's friendship, bringing to light what it looks like at the beginning and what it may become in the future. When you listen to the lyrics, it talks about a friendship from two points of view, the friends and those looking at it from the outside. The song is light, almost dreamlike. The use of the violins at the start bring you in. The flute adds to the sound. The guitar that follows Per Bailey helps define the melody, and the soft drum and cymbal that come in help move the song along. When Pearl Bailey starts singing about what the friendship looks like when on the outside, the, the tune changes to express a difference in what is happening, and so then it comes back to the original tune. As the song draws to a close, the tempo slows and brings it to a soft there. end. The song you're overall the describes a friendship friend. and brings a sense of hope. Life's a happy game. You could clown around forever. Neither one of you sees your natural boundaries. Life's one happy game. If only the world wouldn't get in the way. If only people would just let you play. They say you'll both be fools. You're breaking all the rules. They can't understand the magic of your wonderland. <laughs> when you're the best of friends, sharing all that. When these moments have passed, will that friendship last? Who can say there's a way? Oh, I hope, I hope it never ends. Cause you're the best of Bailey sang two other songs for the film, including Lack of Education and Appreciate the Lady, the song that brings most people to tears during The Fox and the Hound, and I'm guilty of this myself, is sung by the Widow Tweed, or Jeanette Nolan, called Goodbye May Seem Forever. This is in the scene where Widow Tweed is leaving Todd in the woods. For the first part of the song, it is more of an inner monologue for Tweed. It is almost as if she's saying it out loud to Todd. It's reminiscent of all the moments they shared. It describes their fun times their sad times, Such and the fact that they were always together. She ultimately reaches her goodbye to Todd, saying that he will always be in her heart. When it comes to her leaving, the song switches to a chorus who starts to sing the monologue to the music that plays in the background. Throughout the whole song, the instrumental is soft. 
It utilizes the upper voices, especially the flutes, more than it does the lower. There's a harmonica throughout the piece that brings in a sad, almost country feel. Even before the chorus comes forward with the lyrics, it is present in the soft ooh. It is one of the pieces that is so sweet and so sad at the same time. It concludes Todd's time with Widow Tweed. Goodbye may seem forever. Farewell is like the end. But in my heart's the memory. And there you'll always be. all of the songs, the lyrics and the instrumental music express the different moods in each scene and helps tie the film together, while the only soundtrack that was ever officially released was on record. Best of Friends has been released on numerous Disney compilation CDs. Well, my time is up for the week. I hope you all enjoyed this segment. Enjoy the rest of the show and the rest of your week. Until next time, D-Heads, see ya! Like a rhyme and a song, we all belong. Like a bird in a tree, we were meant to be. Like a nose and a tail, like a horse and a trail, like a bass and a fiddle, like a laugh and a riddle, like a pond and a frog, like a month and a log. We're a hand and a glove, an example of Every crowd we face Every school we chase Every time and place We're in harmony Every tune we have Every line we grow ah, Every vow We're in harmony And their dealings with stressed envelope to Davis and Kurt right down that. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, we can't leave these people here like this. We can't? No. Come on, you know how we feel about our fans. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, guys, what do you expect me to do? Is send them all with you? Yeah. Hey. Wait. Wait a minute. I love that idea. How about some backstage passes?
<laughs> okay, folks. Look, the show is all the way across town. But I got you a really fast car. Okay, wait. It's up I'm so excited to have this week's special guest here for a chat. Let me fill you in on who he is exactly. Have you ever been to a Disney theme park? Or seen an animated feature? Or even the original Tron? Well, if you have, which I'm sure a lot of you have, <laughs> then you will definitely have come across the work of Mr. Jerry Ress an animator, director, and visual effects artist, and more. Jerry is very special, and he is such a wonderful member of the Disney family. Can you believe it? From the age of 16, Jerry was mentored by one of Disney's original nine old men. Wow! He was so close to such an incredible part of Disney history. And it was at the California Institute of the Arts that Jerry was officially trained and he soon jumped into the world of animation in 1978 as an animator for the Christmas children's film, The Small One. By the way, did I mention that Jerry received a Disney scholarship for his university training? Talk about amazing from the get-go. His relationship with Disney strengthened even more so, as he was a part of the Fox and the Hound animation team. It is thanks to the team that Jerry was a part of that we have all our gorgeous and special, cherished memories of our beloved Fox and Hound. <laughs> Just a few years later, Jerry worked on the special effects for Disney's cult classic Tron. We all know how much Disney loves the film and we've all seen the new version that was recently released and it received rave reviews from the cult classic fans, that's for sure. I am in awe of the talents of this week's special guest. Animation really holds a soft spot in my heart. Outside of Disney, Jerry is famous for the 1987 Emmy-nominated animated feature, The Brave Little Toaster. His animation work was able to bring an inanimate toaster to life and to create a memorable story for all. It's really quite incredible when you think about it. All the effort that must have gone into directing and creating The Brave Little Toaster was so worth it. It's actually an adapted short story. And, did you know, it was also nominated for a Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Like I always say, it's wonderful when Disney family members are appreciated and have their talents acknowledged. Here is something else awesome about Jerry. He reunited with his fellow graduate, Tim Burton, to co-write and co-direct the cult classic featurette 
Doctor of Doom. Jerry has some pretty awesome directorial roles under his belt, including the 1991 film The Marrying Man and the Back to Neverland documentary starring Robin Williams and Walter Cronkite. This was shown as part of the Animation Studios tour of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Throughout his career, Jerry has certainly worked with some big names, including Steve Martin, Robin Williams, Martin Short, Alan Cumming, Kim Basinger, Goldie Hawn, and the list really does go on and on. Who hasn't Jerry worked with? And what medium hasn't he perfected? To say I am impressed is a real understatement. I'm learning so much. In 1996, Jerry was also an animator and animation producer on the film Space Jam. Now, Jerry has done a lot of directorial work for the theme park attractions. For instance, he directed a short called The Editing Story, which was screened as part of the backstage tour at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Bear with me. Jerry's list of achievements is incredibly magical. He has directed and produced a record-setting 15 multimedia featurettes at the various Disney theme parks and counting, by the way. These include dangerous sounds at Disney's then MGM Studios, the live action sequence of Cranium Command at Epcot, the Indiana Jones epic stunt spectacular at Hollywood Studios, which I recently saw and can I say, it's awesome. <laughs> and something else awesome that Jerry directed, the rock and roller coaster at Hollywood Studios. Can you believe it must have been so much fun and one of those once in a lifetime experiences to work with Aerosmith and Disney in one? <laughs> he also directed the extraterrestrial alien encounter at the Magic Kingdom and the new Cinemagic show at Walt Disney Studios Paris. I really could go on and on, Jerry has just done so much. He's also directed the pre-ride film at Disney's Animal Kingdom ride, The Dinosaur. I love that one, it just gets you in the mood to go and search for some dinosaurs and it just makes you feel adventurous. And that's all thanks to Jerry's direction. He has also had an influence aboard the Disney Cruise Line. My favourite of Jerry's pieces, like I said before, is the Rockin' Roller Coaster at Disney's Hollywood Studios and Euro Disney. I just love how pumped and ready to go you feel after watching the fun and energetic Aerosmith shot. No matter how many times you experience it, it just keeps getting better. And that's all because of Jerry's work. Well, what's Jerry up to now, you ask? He is a full-time creative consultant at the San Francisco film studio Wild Brain Incorporated, where he's working on a number of computer-generated films. This week's special guest career is soaring to new heights every day. Just like Disney said himself, we have to keep looking for new sources of innovation and curiosity always looking forward.
and that's exactly what Jerry does. Obviously, I haven't been able to quite capture all of Jerry's work, but it seems clear to me that he is an amazing, talented and very magical member of Disney. And Disney is certainly lucky to have Jerry as part of the family. When he is not directing, animating or producing, in his personal time, Jerry is a renowned sculptor and fine artist. And it is fair to say that he's always searching for new storytelling opportunities and challenges. Thank you, Jerry Ress. Without you, Disney certainly would not be the same. Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest Laughing back and forth at what the other has to say Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day Never ever thinking there was danger in the water They were drinking, they just guzzled it down Never dreaming that a scheming sheriff and his posse Was watching them and gathering around Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest Jumping fences, dodging trees and trying to get away Contemplating nothing but escaping, finally making it Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day Alright D-Heads, so I hope you've been enjoying the show so far, all kinds of fun. Thank you once again D-Team for stopping in and the show is quite different here this week and I I know it's different D-Heads, it's something different. I try to change it up, it's a very long show here this week, but come on, who can pass up the chance from hanging out with this guy, Jerry Rees, all show long. So with that said, let's just jump right into it Jerry. A second way into a variety of different things, I mean we, we could be talking for hours, there's so many different things you've worked on. Um, but, uh, you know, getting to, uh, you know, away from Walt Disney World and things like that, uh, you know, and talking about stars and knowing what they should be doing, I guess uh, let's go to Disneyland for a little bit. And how about the, you know, the uh, first 50 magical years with Steve Martin? That was a fantastic special. I actually had it on uh, VHS when it aired and now transferred it to DVD. Uh, how was it working on that? Because, you know, Steve Martin, of course, is a class act, and that special was fantastic. Uh, well, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and uh, and it was a total joy. And, but it was also a um, a, a real challenge, uh, all rolled into one. And the the reason it was a challenge, well, let me start with a joy. The reason it was a joy it was because we were working with Steve, and Steve is a total pro, and. He, it's so interesting because he, man, when you call action, he just lights up like a light. I mean, it, there's just this luminosity that happens between takes. He's uh, very soft-spoken and thoughtful and he comes over and he'll be talking about, do you, th- what, do you think it's uh, better to do this two times or three times? You know, he's sort of analyzing the situation and you call action and boom, the light goes on. It's just, a, it was amazing to watch that happen. So, so he was the joy. He was the reason it was fun. And also the also because he wasn't just pretending to tell the story of Disney. He lived it. He really did get his career start working in the magic shop on Main Street and and really did get his start on the stage because of Wally Bogue, who worked in the Golden Horseshoe, who mentored him, took him under his wing. That's That could be a whole other special in itself. So there, 
those were just joyous things. The challenge was, <laughs> um, it was so interesting. I had gotten a call from uh, uh, Dick Cook's office, and they they said, um, you know, is, is it okay if we tell Steve that you'll be directing the show? Um, uh, you know, we'd we'd like to be able to tell him that when we go pitch him and i said well absolutely i'm flattered that you think that would make points and uh absolutely have my permission and he said well you've worked with uh with martin short a couple times and steve and marty are best buddies in real life and you know it's just easy for steve to pick up the phone and say hey what's it like working with jerry so they said that you know this is a good thing uh to have the two friends talk and it, it'll it'll help draw him into this so so that that was all good and flattering and fun um but <laughs> then the schedule was so tight and so i was told by the person who had uh met him in new york uh and they had shown him the script and sat with him and uh, had an executive representing imagineering and stuff and uh they said that he he had said oh this is impossible. You you can't do this. It's a completely unrealistic schedule. And that's coming from S Steve Martin, writer, director, actor, producer, playwright, banjo player. <laughs> I mean, he's done everything. And as a pro, not just, you know, somebody who's making an observation, but as a pro who's done it all, he pronounced it undoable. And... He was assured, don't worry, Jerry can do it. <laughs> he's, he's used to this stuff. Believe me, he can. So I was told, like, he said it's impossible, but we told him you could do it. <laughs> so I was like, well, thank you very much for putting me in a corner. So uh, so I then I just said, look, the only way I can deliver on that, if you let, let me prep the heck out of this thing. And uh, so, and, you know, everybody was really supportive went through tons of prep trying to get everything working like clockwork um, beyond what would normally even happen on a tight set. And one of the things that we had to do was, of course, when he's doused by the elephant in the Jungle Cruise ride, you know, the, uh, the full water douse gag at the end, um, he had to leave for a charity event right after I filmed that. And the same person had assured Steve that Jerry will get it in one take. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. It's like under – it's complex. It's like there's the, the boat. And you think about it. It's like you can't just dump water. It has to seem like it comes from an elephant's trunk. It has to be a lot of volume of water so it completely douses him. It has to arc up and over because it's trying to get under the awning. Those boats all have awnings, so you can't just send it down from the top. It'll hit the awning, right? So you have to have a powerful spray that starts far enough to be off screen, arc up and then down and not hit the awning, but perfectly hit him in the head. Uh, so we had, it was like JPL. We had like the, you know, um, the uh, NASA tests going on where it's like predicting the Mars landing rover behavior where it was like the mechanism the pressure that videos would be sent to me and like looking at it no make it two degrees higher make the pressure a little more make the volume <laughs> all this stuff so uh man i had to hand it to the to the uh the physical effects teams and all the other departments because everybody knew the pressure was on and um 
they delivered, man. And we got it in one take. And uh, Steve thanked me and left like five minutes early. And uh, he said, oh, by the way, I'll say hi to Marty. I'm going to a charity event with Martin Short. So I was like, oh, cool. Say hi. And then I got a um, a kind note back from Dick Cook's office later that Steve had gotten back in touch and said, oh, that was a very pleasant experience. So I was so glad that his opinion went from impossible to pleasant experience. <laughs> so I was like, survived. Um, but we, we had a ton of fun. And I'll tell you, his his stories about um, Wally Bogue were precious. And I really am hoping someday to uh, dig into that deeper with him and somehow get that in a documentary or something. Cause he, you know, he told you know, we hinted at it in, in the, uh, in the piece that we did in the park, but it was so much more deep than that. He said that he, you know, he was at the magic shop and he started to explore the park. It's like, where is this that I'm working? And so when he'd get a break, he'd go explore and had a lot of fun. And he heard all these people just roaring with laughter one day. He had gone by the Golden Horseshoe. And so he peeks in and he, he sees this guy on stage that just has the audience in the palm of his hands. He's, you know, he's just doing this vaudevillian slapstick stuff and just, just every moment perfectly timed. Uh, and he would do things like have the, the fake teeth tucked in his cheek to like after he gets a you know punched in the face he would like spit the teeth out perfectly you know two and then three and then one and you know it's just perfect timing and great choreography or he'd come out and you wouldn't realize that he he would have a holster on right and you didn't realize it but he'd have his stomach like protruding a little bit to purposely hold it in place and then at exactly the right line of dialogue he'd pull his stomach in and the holster would drop around his knees you know he just was like full of all these tricks that he was effortlessly pulling off on stage and so steve martin got mesmerized by this guy and his ability to work a crowd and just just uh you know tell stories and amuse people and make them laugh and so you now see it from wally bogue's point of view he's on stage the golden horseshoe review right he's entertaining all the crowd after crowd after crowd and then he looks out and he sees, oh, there's a Disney employee. That, that, okay. And then he's, <laughs> he goes through a crowd, another you know, show, show, show. Oh, there's a Disney employee, the same Disney employee. And then there's show, show, show. Oh, there he is again. His name plaques is Steve. And uh, so finally he's like, I keep noticing you here. And he's like, oh, sir, I think you're amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I work in the magic shop. But anytime I get a break or if I'm, when I'm done with my schedule, I come to see you because I think you're amazing. So... Wally took him under his wing and he, and Steve told me, he said, look, you know, the balloon animals, the arrow through the head, the shtick with the banjo, like all that stuff Wally taught me. He said, I, I, I absolutely attribute him with starting my entertainment career. And so it was so nice that the producers arranged for Wally Bogue to come visit Steve on the set while we were shooting. So we surprised Steve with that. And uh, so they had one of their, one of the lunches on the uh, on during our shoot was with the two of them together to have their time to to be together and chat and stuff. So we we had a lot of fun with that. But uh, but yeah, it was just it was it was such a, a treat and um, to tell the story of the of the park genuinely and from the point of view of somebody who who lived it. You know, that was just just a treat. And also, it was so fun to remind people of what a what a talent. Steve is, and I, I, I'm so happy that he has now the, the music career, right? Um, and that, and that 
people in the music industry, and it's rare that that happens, but are, are really given the stamp of authenticity. Like this is just actor playing at music. This is legitimately like great music being created. Um, and he had his, his banjo with him. So I, you know, what I was having him do is play the banjo along with the, you know, the country bears and, and, you know, doing the, uh, you know, things like the magic where he did close up magic. Um, I had him do, um, trick, um, uh, gunslinging, you know, where he had the, the holsters and the, you know, the, the two pistols and, and all of that stuff. And just, it, it was amazing on the set for us to watch him do all of these things. It's like, he's, you know, the, the sleight of hand, the, the playing the banjo beautifully. Um, and then the trick gun work, I, I was so startled. I, I, I almost ruined takes by laughing because he startled the hell out of me. Um, by doing the the trick gun twirling and um he also was saying that 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 you know wally was one of the people that helped him start that too uh but it, we we had gone through this evolution it was it was <laughs> it was so fun uh the 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 you know the line producer come up to me and went yeah that's you know he's going to be wearing uh the uh western outfit these are the gun, the gun holsters and guns that they that they have for you. Don't you think this doesn't look like cool enough for Steve? I mean, don't you think you just have like shinier sort of dude, you know, uh, you know, cowboy outfit? Should, shouldn't it be more sparkly and fun? And I said, yeah, yeah, you, you're right. It's just this kind of like rubber stunt pistols, you know, that you'd use to fall off a building and not have them hurt you. It's like, no, this is more for show. You're right. Thanks. Thanks for thinking about that during the rush. So he comes back, you know, he, so he'd interrupt me during the rush, like, hey, here's the pistols I found. They're pretty cool, but what do you think? It's like, yeah, I like them. He's like, don't you think they could use pearl handles, though? Maybe I'll get somebody to put pearl handles on them. It's like, oh, good idea. Good idea. So um, he brings them back. Yeah, okay, here they are with the pearl handles. Oh, that's beautiful. And he's like, Here's a better holster. Don't you think this is more fits with Steve? And like, ah, great. Thank you so much. It's perfect. So that's all all I had considered. I, I had not considered that he would use the guns, but just that they would look cool when he wore them, right? So I call action, and I was absolutely startled and shocked and overjoyed when he started doing all the trick twirling. And I just, I almost burst out loud laughing and ruined my own take. Um but he he was brilliant at it, where he could twirl and then and make it look like an accident, but put them both backwards into the holster at the same time, so that you know the barrels are pointing up. Um, he just had all this shtick that he did flawlessly, and I thought, oh my gosh, when when does he practice all this stuff? His magic, the gun twirling, the banjo playing, all this stuff that he's just—it's specialty stuff that where there's no trick except skill, you know, with all of those things. The only way you can have it is by spending time to develop the skill and then keep doing it so you keep good at it, you know? It's like there's no there's no trick. You just have to be good. And he was good at all that stuff. So that was another really fun thing is to remind people of just how brilliantly talented he was all the way around, which was really like a throwback to the vaudevillian days of people, you know, live in front of an audience having to do everything they pretend to do, you know, you can't just cut and ha add some computer effects or something. It's, it's, uh, they really learned skills and man, he had them. So it was, it was just fun to do kind of a reminder of like, remember everyone, this man is brilliant. <laughs> even, even more than you know. 
Well, you know, and that's the kind of thing where, you know, like you said, uh, you know, Wally had taught Steve many things. And let's just say that I always told myself when I was going to be a dad, I was going to be able to learn how to twirl my wedding ring like he does in Father of the Bride. And I have, I, I finally have mastered that. <laughs> I hope you've posted a video of that. No, not yet, but my daughter thinks it's amazing. Well, that you should do one with your daughter watching it, and uh, then she can pronounce it amazing at the end and post. <laughs> there we go. Uh, you know, um, but you know, so many different things. You know, Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and whatnot. And like I said, we could be talking for hours. But you have had a chance. You know, I don't want to keep you too too long all night long. But you know, you did have a chance to work with some great people like Thurl Ravenscroft, and also you know even Tim Burton. Which you know, many people always forget that you know you you do other things aside from Disney. And how about Doctor of Doom and Space Jam and all that kind of fun stuff? So. How was it working on Doctor of Doom? Because to me, that that's a cult classic. Oh, uh, <laughs> thanks. You know, it's it just Tim and I. It's it, we we spent there was about a year where we just uh, hung out a lot, and you know, people people sort of saw the odd side of him, and just kind of they they thought that was Tim. It's like. Oh, he's the kind of weird guy and it's fun to watch. And it's kind of, he puts on a spectacle and he has the sort of the, I am a monster guy, but, um, but you know, a lot of people kind of stopped at that threshold. Um, you know, I had gotten to know him more and I saw him as just completely a kind hearted, fun, dimensional friend and who also happened to kind of feel the odd person out. And I really felt like some of his fascination with monster stories and having sort of an affection for the monster's point of views because he felt a little left out and a little the odd person and and needed acceptance you know so um i remember being at a party where he had asked somebody to uh to put him in a straitjacket and he was um and so he went the whole evening not talking to anyone and being in the straitjacket and uh, people were just like oh tim he's so funny um, he's so weird. And, um, so I, you know, I heard this sort of ba-boom, ba-boom outside. And I, I went out and there was a swimming pool at this person's house and on the diving board at night, all by himself with Tim in the straitjacket, um, just bouncing on the board. So I thought, well, you know, everybody's just like having beers and going, Oh, that funny Tim. And they walk away and are just like in the house having a party. And I went, if Tim falls in, I'm going to be the person to dive in and save his life. So, you know, so I uh, stopped drinking and I uh, <laughs> I put my beer down and I just sat against the house and I, I didn't try to talk him off the board or anything. I just stayed there. So if he fell in, I'd dive in. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just kind of, things like that started happening and he would notice and that I was sort of being there. And, uh, and we, we did things like we, we found that we had a, uh, equal fascination for things like, um, um, oh, the Samson movies that were, were Mexican superhero movies. And, uh, so, you know, everybody else would be off doing whatever. And on like a Friday, Saturday night, Tim and I would just be either in my apartment or his apartment watching, Mexican language Samson movies or, or dubbed Samson movies. And um, so we got such a kick out of it. And then we went to see Ed Wood movies um, at revival theaters in LA where you'd see uh, Glenn or Glinda and uh, plan nine from outer space and stuff. And 
Um, so people were kind of looking at both, like we were both uh, kind of odd to spend our time looking at such crazy things, but we just, just got a kick out of how sort of naive and, and fun and, and crazy they were. And they, the, 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 the dialogue at the end of Dr. Doom where it's like, for a human being, you have amazing tendencies. You know, that kind of, that kind of dialogue was actually, we were actually quoting the, the kind of uh, translations that came from, from uh, those dubbed Mexican films. And it was so cool. Uh, Samson movies, he was just in a, uh, a wrestler outfit, right? So he had the, he had the, the head, the, the head mask on, you know, so you, you couldn't see his real face and he's dressed with a cape and stuff. But in the, in the films, I don't know if it was that way in the original release or just the dubbed versions, but, um, you know, they'd have the, like the really odd translations that they would speak and then have a whole fight sequence where there's nothing, no music, nothing except just the sound of people grunting like, mm, uh, and that's it, you know, and no other sound. So it was, there was this whole surreal kind of quality to it. And uh, for some reason, you know, the people in the films just thought Samson was such an amazing hero and stuff. And so we just thought that was fun. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I filmed it and purposely got myself in shots. We did really weird things like uh, we went to uh, a place that would have like 20 statues of the same exact um, – Toreador, whatever you know, bullfighter uh, sculpture that was imported, and um, black velvet painting and stuff. So we we got some of that stuff, and then we said, well, let's have it in every shot. Let's like just that sculpture and that black velvet painting just travel wherever wherever we are. It's just there magically, always in the shot. Um, and then when we have people talk, purposely don't tell them what to say; just tell them how to behave and then we're going to dub all of it later and we don't want the mouths to match whatsoever. So, um, <laughs> we'd, you know, we'd purposely cause bad dubbing to happen. That was our intention. And, uh, just had a ton of fun with it. And I don't know if you saw the version that I, uh, uh, posted with full credits on YouTube. I know it's been, I, I guess it's been completely uh, restored, but, um, I, I bothered to post the credits for, all the dubbing and who was in it and, and all of that on a, on a YouTube link. Um, I think it was from my, from my website. And uh, so, you know, Brad Bird is not in it. He never appears in it, but he is one of the main voices. Uh, Randy Cartwright does one of the voices. I did one of the voices. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting conglomeration of interesting people from the world of animation. And, uh, and then we, you know, we did, um, uh, so we had fun with that, and then we did uh, uh, Luau after that, and we we made a pact that anytime someone would start to understand the plot, we would change it so that it would become <laughs> incomprehensible again. Uh, and, and, you know, we just we had a really fun time. It was just like non-sequitur, fun, crazy, sort of a nod to these different uh, genres, and you know, we we felt like we were sort of capturing the essence of what we felt from some of these things. I mean, we, you know, we felt like, yeah, in those beach movies, people do fight and then make up. And there's really weird things, sci-fi things or, uh, you know, just different kind of 
of strange things that show up in some of those classic beach movies. So we, we felt like we weren't taking that big of a leap. <laughs> we, were, we were kind of paying homage more than taking a leap. And, um, uh, but, you know, to have Tim be a disembodied head in, uh, in Luau was, was just fun. He challenges the surfer to a contest for his body because he's a, he's a bodiless head. Um, so anyway, we, you know, we just had fun. We had no clue anyone would ever look at them again. Uh, we were just having fun, you know. And uh, so, you know, and then we both got crazy busy. And um, uh, gosh, years went by. And <laughs> I, I saw him soon after he had filmed Pee Wee, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And then, uh, and then years later, I went to the showing of his, his large format Polaroids. Uh, it was at a gallery. And I think he had just done uh, Ed Wood. And so, and, it, you know, anytime we bump into each other, it's just like, like no time has passed. And uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next time we bump into each other. But it's, it's, it's sadly been many years in between with just, uh, you know, crazy busyness. But I know there will be a, a, a time where we'll be off somewhere having coffee talking about the uh, Doctor of Doom <laughs> days, <laughs> no doubt. Well, you know, I mean, lots of great things. I mean, you know, everything from Doctor Doom all the way through all your Disney credits and all that kind of fun stuff. So um, I won't keep you too much longer. We've had a great conversation here. We know you're a busy guy, but um, we always know that everything is always on lockdown. It's always secret. But, uh, you know, are you working on anything new for the Disney company uh, that we might see pop up very soon? Uh, Yes, working on multiple things and uh one in particular that we're very excited about but we can't say a word about um but you know uh, one of the great joys i had recently um was was doing um animation magic where you know for a, for a long time ever since since tron have been you know pushing into you know next gen technology being our invisible friend during storytelling and uh, and actually in 2007 i went to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Sharjah at three of the Emirates um, at the invitation of Sheikh Mohammed to pitch new cities where you would have build physical and virtual cities so that people would have uh, maximum interface for virtual uh, people that are, are represented as avatars and virtually interacting with people in the real space. And so I, you know, I've, and I'm still actually wildly passionate about, building the infrastructure for next generation communication standard globally and have ongoing efforts with multiple people, including emails that happen today. Um, but, you know, it's many years and it's a lot of heavy lifting and it's a lot of different components that have to come together to do that. But I have, you know, these big visions for next gen technology. And on the show Animation Magic, it was just so fun to go in and and roll up our sleeves together at Disney and do some of that. Because I'd been doing a lot of that outside of Disney. And that was the time where we, I, I, I don't know if you've gotten to experience that. It's, it's on the, 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 big, the biggest cruise ships, the, the, the new Disney cruise ships. Um, but it's called Animation Magic. And 700 people at a time that go into the space can do freehand drawing of a character of the, whatever is in their head. It can be a squiggle. It can just be... <laughs> you know, a, a specific character or nondescript or a stick stick figure, 
um, we have no idea what you're going to draw. But once you draw it, um, we, through some Disney magic, have your character performing in the main show before the main show is over. Um, so it's it, your character is not just a decal, not just in the background, not just a texture, but it performs. It tap dances in a showdown with Mickey Mouse. It dances with the genie from uh, Aladdin. So it's, uh, you know, your, your character gets incorporated in, into classic Disney footage um, just within minutes after you have drawn whatever you want. So, you know, that was something where I, I had really been experimenting. I actually was experimenting for a Secret Life of Graffiti project. Um, I, I really have had a fondness for, uh, you know, some of the, the urban muralists that, uh, that have been you know, leaving these beautiful works of art around the various major cities and have a, a little bit of an in with them through a, a photojournalist named Birdman who's uh, based out here in L.A. And he's actually been well-regarded enough by the urban artists themselves that they helped him put on a one-man photo show where he would photograph their murals and then they would hand paint on top of his photographs to make them one of a kind for showing in a gallery. Um, so, um, you know, I had been doing this secret life of graffiti. What, what if graffiti could come alive? What if drawings could come alive? Um, and doing experiments with that. And so it was so fun after years of doing that sort of in my creative cave lab to now have the amazing resources of Disney come to bear to say, we, we do think this is a magic moment that's worthy of the Disney parks and that they were willing to do the heavy lifting of taking. So I had done proof of concept for, um, for doing individual pieces of art and had a lot of fun with that and had some really fun show and tell that, that, that the Disney folks were able to immediately see like this could be really charming and wonderful. But the, you know, the heavy lifting that came from the Disney resources was the ability to take you know that proof of concept I'd done for individual pieces of art and scale it up to work for seven hundred people at a time and to, and to happen in sort of real time circumstance um, you know I had been asking the Imagineers like okay you and your kids give me some drawings and uh, you know tomorrow morning or in three hours or whatever I I would come back with renderings of their art. Um, you know, incorporated into various animated scenes. And so they totally fell in love with the charm of it, the potential of it. But, um, man, it, it took some really great teams of people to scale that up to work in real time for 700 people. So, uh, so anyway, that, that was something that was sort of bridged my efforts outside of Disney where I'd really been pushing as far into the future as really trying to rethink what an avatar even means and that it's a projection of you, secure projection of you rather than a symbol of you, and it's used for everyone for all communication instead of for video gamers. Video gamers are still welcome to use it, but um, graduating it into um, the global communication scene. So I, you know, I'd been doing a, a lot of that and still am out, outside of Disney, but it was just wonderful to really be inside of Disney in the theme parks really uh, every all of us together embracing next gen solutions and um so you know we opened that um the joyous thing for us was people not only 
had fun with it, got into it, but we started to hear terms. And, and you know, Joe Lan Cicero, who's terrific creative lead over at Imagineering, who was all in that very first CalArts class with me, um, he came back from that experience and he said he had sat with members of the public and various executives who were getting to experience it for the first time. And he said people were using words like empowering, like they felt empowered by the experience and especially people who were going, Oh, I can't draw. I don't know. I, I, and they'd be embarrassed and they do some little squiggle and they would think it was pathetic. But then that was the most magical thing. I mean, when something's beautifully drawn, you expect, yes, it'll come alive. But when something is like the little misfit squiggle and it comes alive and it's dancing, people would cheer for that more than anything. So, um, you know, people felt really uh, engaged with it emotionally and not just uh, as as a novelty. And so people had a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I think there's talk of bringing that to a lot more uh, places where you can experience and than, than just on those original two ships. So there's there's plans to to scale that up. But, you know, that, that sort of whetted our appetites. We're like, okay, using some really forward-thinking next-gen tools as um, – you know, uh, storytelling tools and emotional tools to be just our, our hidden allies in, in the magic and the storytelling uh, is sort of irresistible. And we've always done it in, in a lot of really interesting different ways. But, but that in particular was really pushing into next-gen tools that are really contemporary. And um, so we've had a lot of fun just going, okay, if that was the shallow end of the pool, what does it mean to dive into the deep end? And uh, so we've come up with with what that is, and we are joyfully diving way into the deep end of the pool. And it's we're doing some things that I, I would just consider from many years with Disney through many regimes. Um, this is one of the bravest uh, things that we've all undertaken together. And so I'm happy that, you know, we'll, we'll be dealing, you know, with the usual sort of larger than life spectacle and emotion and all the rest and just have um, just a brave, unexpected, wonderful experience together like nobody's ever seen before. So um, other than that, I I have like uh, helicopters will hovel over my house and they'll pull me out of the window. Hooded ninjas will pull me out of the window if I say any more. So... <laughs> Yeah, we always know it has to be hush hush, but you always got to ask anyways. You know, it's if there's always that uh, maybe a flub up or something where I might get the information and then they say, "Oh, oh wait, don't air that." <laughs> right, right. No, it's uh, uh, you know uh, the, the just I think the good news that everyone's happy to have people know is that the you know the adventure, the quest for quality and surprises is alive and well. So. There was a lot of a lot of fun to be had in the parks, and uh, and I think in in ways that people will find completely unpredictable. I don't think people can uh, can guess. Very cool. Well, you know, we don't want to keep you too much longer. We appreciate all your time stopping in. You know, so many different things. You know, I think it's time that someday let's talk about Cinemagique, though. Oh, there's so many different things we could talk about. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where I think we might just have to have you be our first part two guest stopping in one of these times. Well, with, with 16 projects, uh, there was even uh, a flurry of activity at, at the beginning of this process where uh, I was shown some emails from people saying, 
what Jerry's proposing is 10 years in the future, and this is a crazy effort, and it'll never work. Um, and then I brought in some people from outside of Disney, and we put in put on a demo at Disney, and um, and we also talked to some people that are in their R&D inner sanctum, and it changed from not possible to absolutely possible. And you know, I always try to be to be strategic about taking unexpected combinations of blooming technologies that are not known yet or just about to happen. But, you know, unfortunately I'm very well connected with a lot of things that are percolating in a number of areas in, including Alison Savage, who's the chairperson for new media at the producers guild. So people who are wanting to have their new technology that they're just inventing, uh, introduced to the film community, uh, knock on her door. And that's sort of where the parade starts into the film industry. And she and I have been best friends for a number of years and are, uh, have many things we're strategizing. The trip to Dubai was uh, Allison and I were um, together on that adventure as well. So, so, you know, she's got years of experience with people like James Cameron and, um, and Coppola and, and various people like that. Um, as a producer and she's totally uh, about next gen technology that is about to happen. And so, you know, I, it's, it's wonderful to have those kind of inroads into what's about to bloom. And so in this case, I was able to go back to Disney and, and say uh, the old paradigm, you don't have to worry about anymore. Here's some examples of what's about to happen. And here's some that's functional today. Let's, let's watch it work. Um, and so everything changed to, yes, it'll happen. So if you, if you take things that, that are, that, you know, already work well for you, and then you take things that are emerging and then some things that, that may or may not emerge, but if you put serious resources toward helping them bloom, they will, um, you can really be the first person and, 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 and the, the total effect is that you're really far reaching, but you're trying to be strategic about doing things that are attainable in the near future. So as we look towards late 2015, early 2016, knowing that we're in bed with, you know, all different kinds of people that partner in making something like that happen, we have full confidence that, it, that we can pull it off. And, um, you know, the, the animation magic show in the shallow end of the pool um, won a most innovative use of technology award for for Disney, a Thea Thea award. Um, so, Cinemagique was my first Thea, and Animation Magic was the second, and that one was in particular for most innovative use of technology. And we have every confidence that this one will, in the deep end of the pool, <laughs> um, leave you know leave leave that in the dust uh, in terms of people seeing innovative technology. So anyway, that's, it's a really fun trajectory to be on. And I, I'm always looking forward, but sometimes when people do look back and um, I kind of had to reintroduce myself to the current regime at Disney and the, the people just before I did the pitch for that new show, uh, some of the team members said, you know, why don't you, why don't you put like a little bio of yourself up front before you start? Because, you know, you've been through what, five different regimes now. So these guys are just kind of getting to know you for the first time. They don't know 
that a lot of the legacy you had your hand in, you know. So there, I, so I did do like a uh, a uh, I called it the Jerry Reese one minute history um, for the head of parks and and resorts, and so there, there were a lot of people that were startled and surprised and. Oh my gosh, you did that? What? Back to Neverland led to Aladdin? I thought it came after. And, you know, so there was a lot of, even inside of Disney, people going, wow, I didn't know this history and I didn't know you were there and I didn't realize. So when I look back, it's like shocking to me that it's 39 years since I was in high school and had that desk at Disney. Um, and it's, you know, next year, it's like 40 years since, since uh, I was first like, on the Disney property, um, and uh, so that's startling to me um, because I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I still feel like I'm in the first ten years of working with Disney, uh, just in terms of you know how I feel, what we have on the plate, how innovative we're being, looking forwards. It's just uh, it's always fresh, and then I look back and go, you know, some people are going to start looking at me as the <laughs> as the old man again. Like I used to look at Frank and Ollie, and uh, that's sort of a startling revelation that that's uh, just around the corner. But um, it's it's just uh, it remains a fresh, fun adventure, and it, it's just fun to be part of introducing uh, the people there to how adventurous we can really be. Um, and you know, I, I just think like we we just had the 30th anniversary of Tron, and um, so there were two of us, Bill Croyer and I were the two people who storyboarded all the, and, and then sequence directed all the pure computer stuff uh, for Tron. And we were at the Chinese theater for the 30th anniversary and Bill, we were doing a Q&A with the, the Chinese theater filled with wonderful fans who were dressed up in different Tron outfits and stuff. It was great to see. But Bill reminded me when we were doing our Q&A, he, he told the crowd, he said, you know, when we came into Disney and, you know, with Stephen and Stephen was there to talk that night and everything too. But he said, you know, we, Stephen and, and our, our little team came in onto the Disney property and we invited the animation crew to come join us on this brave new adventure. And he said, and he point, it's because Bill and I were sitting together in front of the theater and he goes, Jerry was the only person from the whole Disney crew that came and joined us. And um, I had forgotten that. And it was like, yeah, I guess he's right. But, you know, that sort of feeling of adventure of going, this is not our enemy. I had so many people at the time that were still in the animation department were going, why are you going to do that? It's push button art. It's mechanical. That's not what Disney is about. I'm like, no, it's not. It's a tool in the hands of us as artists and storytellers. Well, it'll never be able to do it. emotions. Like, yeah, it will. And, you know, of course, now it's, everybody's accepted it but at the time they looked at me and bill and the rest of the team like we were nuts and our our advocacy advocacy at the time always was all of this emerging stuff if you shape it as storytellers and artists it will be your best ally it doesn't have to be push button it doesn't have to be automatic it's whatever you make it and so i'm still on that quest and it was still it was interesting to have that ex- exact same experience just over the last 2 months where I encountered like doubters and people that were biting their nails and troubled and we can't do it and it's too far and it's too futuristic and now going, oh my gosh, we're going to do this and it's going to amaze people. This is going to be fun. So, you know, it's it's still the same quest. And uh, so to me, it just feels like, oh yeah, Tron was, what was that, like two years ago? And it's like, 
No, it was it was many years ago. You know, well, thank you once again for stopping in. And if anybody, you know, literally, if they're in the parks or televisions or film or on the Disney cruise ships, you name it, uh, you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be seen in part of their lives. And we appreciate you stopping in once again. Thanks, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. It's been a fun evening with you. LVD head, so I hope you enjoyed this week's show and all the different fun things that we had in a little bit of a different format. And I'm going to definitely tell you who we're going to have here next week here on the show very shortly. But first, I do want to thank our very special guest, Jerry Rees, once again for stopping in. You have touched so many lives, whether it's animated films, classics, Walt Disney World attractions, and more. You have been there for all of us D heads, adding to that magic and the memories and our appreciation of the Walt Disney parks, the animated films, and I can only imagine what we're going to see in the
in the future. And I may hold you up to that deal as coming back as our first ever returning guest. Thank you once again, Jerry, for stopping in. I'd also like to thank the D team of Aaron, Jamie, Lexi, Jason, and our newest member, Paige, for stopping in with their signature segments, adding a little bit of magic and memories to your show here this week, D-Heads. And remember to connect up with all the D-Team on our official website at DizRadio.com. Just go there and click the D-Team link, shoot them emails, and start interacting. Don't be scared, they love to talk. So all of you D-Heads, with all that said, before I let you know who's going to be here next week on the show, I'm going to give you all the different ways you can stay connected here at Disney On Demand. And first and foremost, you can always visit our official website at DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. Now there you can find our full list of past shows, our archives, All kind of fun things, including the latest news, reviews, Twitter feeds, social media, and more, including our all-new 24-7 live chat room. And that's right there on DizRadio.com, D-I-Z Radio.com. You can also find us all over the social media networks on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disney On Demand. You can friend us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disney Blue, and that's B-L-U. You can find us on Twitter, AOL Instant Messenger, Instagram, Pinterest, and more. Just search, yes, you guessed it. Disney Blue, and that's B-L-U. Definitely stay connected, all of you D-heads, and get the power of Diz Radio in your hand absolutely free with our official iPhone app. Just search Diz Radio. And if you do love the show, definitely spread the word, the cheer, and leave some positive feedback in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and more. Just leave that feedback for us so other people can discover our show. Thank you once again, D-heads. You make the magic happen. You are the reason that we do this show every single week. So with that said, all of you D-heads, next week for show number 47, we have a special treat for you. Maybe you're just at that right age, you remember the Power Rangers. Maybe you remember a variety of other things, including some great films, television shows, and more. But I remember her from the 2006 DVD planning video from Walt Disney World. We're going to have Aaron Cahill stopping in here next week here at the show. Now, Aaron has been a part of a variety of different shows, television shows, movies, and like I said, most notably for the 2006 Walt Disney World planning DVD, which you can listen to on our Lifetime of Disney player right on our website. And Aaron's going to stop in, spread the magic, spread the cheer, and uh, touch base on a variety of different things that she's done, including the Power Rangers and Beverly Hills Chihuahua. So get ready for that, all of you D-heads. So until next week with school in session as we kick off September... As I always mention, never neglect family for business. Catch you online and uh, all over the web, D-Heads.
Thank you for tuning in to Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. The content and thoughts expressed are those of the show and not the Disney company. Now go on and relive the magic, memories, and appreciation from your lifetime of Disney. See you real soon.